And go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. Children can be dismissed at Children's Church. Genesis chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 2. Today we're going to study verses 8 through 19. That's the sermon from a couple of weeks ago. Genesis chapter 3, follow along as I read verses 8 through 19. This is the word of God. And they, speaking of Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. May God give us ears to hear his word. Several years ago, my family and I were given a gift of a new board game. Uh, We enjoy playing board games, and somebody thought we would enjoy Trivial Pursuit Bible version. So they gave it to us. Well, one night we sat down to play the game. We took it out of the cellophane. We laid the board all out. We got the figurines all out, laid the cards all out. But then we discovered something rather unexpected and frustrating. Every single card in this game was completely blank. Blank. They weren't supposed to be blank, but they were. They were as blank as pieces of paper. It was as if the company had simply forgotten to print any information on them, and because of that, the game was completely unplayable. Life is often like that, isn't it? Just not the way it's supposed to be? You've got to agree with this. Regardless of your religious commitments, regardless of your political preferences, regardless of your philosophical presuppositions, life is simply not the way it's supposed to be. This is a world where a person can work hard, save up their money, invest wisely, but then die before they can enjoy their retirement. This is a a life where a a person can devote their lives to helping, say, orphans in India, uh, but then die of malaria shortly after arriving. This is a world where parents can try their best to raise up well-behaved, self-controlled children, but then for those children to go destroy themselves in drugs and alcohol. That's not even to mention things like hurricanes and earthquakes, dementia and diabetes, malaria, miscarriages, Ponzi schemes and pandemics. Our world is not the way it's supposed to be. Do you agree? 
Now, interestingly, of all the world's religions, of all the world's philosophies, it actually is the Bible that has the most coherent explanation for this. You might not realize that, but a comprehensive explanation for why the world is the way that it is, is unique to biblical Christianity. And this explanation is found at the very beginning of the Bible, here in Genesis chapter 3, the passage we're going to be studying today. In this chapter, we're going to see why the world is the way that it is. While God made the universe good and righteous and holy, an event took place that corrupted and poisoned our world. Adam and Eve, like we saw last week, they ate from that forbidden fruit. And when they did that, they opened a Pandora's box and introduced to our world all manner of evil. And yet, as we come to study Genesis 3, what we're going to discover is that intermingled in here is grace. Grace. In the end, God will not let evil have the last word. God is going to definitively defeat evil and set things aright. And when he does, one day things will be done here on earth as they are in heaven. Now, as you can see from today's title, or at least you could have if, our, if my slide had been right, uh, today is part two on the fall. And that's not their fault, by the way. That's my fault. I forgot to change the slide. Uh, so don't, don't blame them. Blame me. But today should have been the fall part two. To remind you what we looked at last week, in last week's sermon, we saw the way in which Adam and Eve, the first two humans, were led astray from God by the serpent. Uh, the serpent who was possessed by the devil tempted Adam and Eve. They inter he introduced doubt into Eve's mind. That doubt led to entertaining that doubt, which then led to disobedience. We saw last week the way in which that sin in God's sight, it instantly led to guilt. Uh, they knew they were naked and Ashamed. They, they knew they had defied their creator, so they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And then we lastly saw last week how that guilt alienated them. It alienated them from God, yes, but also from one another. They tried to hide themselves in the trees of the garden, thinking that the almighty creator won't see them. Well, that was last week's study, and today we're going to be talking about God's response to what they did. How does God react when his creatures disobey his commands. And from this passage, Genesis 3, 8 through 19, I'd like you to consider with me three expressions of our Creator's righteous anger against rebellion. Do we have that slide? There we go. Praise God. Three expressions of our Creator's righteous anger against rebellion. Hopefully, you'll discover this morning that when people disobey God, God is not pleased. God does not just wink at that. God is angry, very angry. And that anger, as we're going to see, is righteous and good. But again, intermingled here is grace. Grace that we cannot take for granted. Grace that's being offered to you today. Now, in one sense, this entire passage is an expression of God's anger. Clearly, the Lord is not happy with Adam and Eve. And he is not hesitant to clearly communicate that displeasure. But remember, God had given Adam and Eve a simple command. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you think about it, that command, it wasn't really complicated. It wasn't confused. Which tree are we not supposed to eat? That one right there. This command was not even that strict, since God had already given them many, many other trees that they could eat from. But flagrantly, rebelliously, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, God measures out different punishments, different judgments on the serpent, on the woman, and then on Adam. But before we meditate on those, simply think with me how the true and living God hates sin. Did you know that? The true and living God, he actually hates things, and chief among those is sin. 
This is one of the most important truths we need to emphasize today. Well, certainly God loves the world. And while certainly Jesus is the savior of the world, and while certainly God is continually pouring out on us mercy and grace that we do not deserve. At the very same time, the God who is God hates it when we disobey his laws. He will not ignore it. He will not brush it under the rug. Indeed, because of God's holiness, every single solitary sin must be justly dealt with. Did you know that? Every single solitary act of sin that you've done, that I've done, that everybody who's ever lived has done, all of that must be righteously dealt with. In the words of Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge, a God who is angry with the wicked every day. In the Gospel of John, this is talking about Jesus, but we read this, John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's the God who is God. He hates sin. But is that the God you believe in? Is that the God you know? Now, before we consider each of these different punishments, I want to point out that these punishments are essentially prophecies. They're predictions of what is yet to take place. The Lord predicts that the woman will experience pain and childbearing. The the Lord predicts that the man will experience frustration in his work. These are consequences for sin, not some sort of goals to aspire to. Now, why do I point that out? I point that out only because from time to time, sometimes people think that we should not try to oppose these curses um, in any way, thinking that we're opposing the will of God. You know, if we say try to make delivery easier for a woman, that's opposing the will of God. If we try to say install air conditioning units in a factory, that's opposing the will of God. Realize that's not the case at all. These are not goals to aspire to, but predictions, prophecies of what's to take place. You can think about it this way. Jesus, one of his major ministries was to alleviate the curse of sin. I mean, Jesus, he's going around healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, giving ears to the deaf, even raising the dead. What is he doing in all of that? He's alleviating the curse of sin. And just like that was righteous for Jesus to do that, so also it's righteous when, say, doctors, nurses, scientists do things to alleviate the curse of sin. That's a good thing. Now, one more comment before we look at these individual curses. As we're going to see, these curses were not for Adam and Eve and the serpent alone, but for all successive generations. From this point forward, all snakes will be cursed because of the serpent's sin. From this point forward, all women will be cursed because of what Eve did. All men will be cursed because of what Adam did. You follow me? These curses are really cosmic in scope, and they forever change the nature of our universe. And what that reminds us of is the way in which Adam and Eve, they really were functioning as representatives for all of humanity at this point. Did you know that? Adam and Eve, and especially Adam, they were representing the entire human race so that the consequences of their sin were counted to the rest of humanity. It's like we read in Romans 5.12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's talking about Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Keep that in mind as we work our way forward. We're reading not only about Adam and Eve and the serpent, but about curses that continue uh, to curse life today. Well, let's talk about these different curses, these different judgments. And the first one we see there in verses 14 and 15, God's judgment against the serpent. Genesis 3, 14 and 15, God's judgment against the serpent. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the first thing that we see here is the way in which the Lord curses this serpent with physical humiliation. Some sort of limitation. He causes the serpent to crawl along on its belly and to eat dust. All of that is indication of humiliation, shame. Now, evidently, like we mentioned last week, before Adam and Eve's fall into sin, apparently the snake had some sort of legs. I think that's the clear implication there in verse 14. Cursed you are, and your, on your belly you shall go. That, to me at least, indicates that he must have had legs of some kind. Otherwise, that curse doesn't make any sense. Now, what exactly he looked like, we don't know. Maybe he looked like a crocodile, maybe he looked like a big lizard, we don't really know. But apparently, one of the curses was that these legs are gone. Now, a question that's often asked is, why does God curse this entire animal species because of what Satan did? If, like we talked about last week, Satan possessed this snake, and the snake was just sort of this unwitting vehicle through whom Satan worked, why curse all of snakes? Well, the best explanation I've come across to this question is that God's anger towards sin is so great that it's poured out not only on the sinner, but on the objects of sin that it uses, the, the tools of sin. Uh, we, we see this from time to time. When a, a young man is killed by a drunk driver, the mother of that young man might not only hate that drunk driver, but also the vehicle he was driving and go pound her fist on the hood of that vehicle so angry she is. You know what I'm talking about? It seems like something like that is taking place here. God's anger towards sin is so great that he curses not only Satan, but the snake that Satan used and even the entire snake species as a perpetual reminder of how bad our sin is. Another thing we learn from these verses is how serious a sin it is to lead others into sin. Did you know that? It is a mega sin to lead others into sin. That's what Satan did here, and that's something that from time to time we do. Jesus warned us against this time and time again. I'm surprised how often this comes up in Jesus' teaching. But for example, in Matthew 18.6, Jesus said this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Let us learn a lesson from this serpent, brothers and sisters. Whenever we encourage others to sin, our God is angry. He is very angry. And while certainly our sins can be covered by the blood of Jesus, that is something we will regret. And just think about your life. Have there been times in your life that you've led others into sin, encouraged others to sin? To my shame, I know that there have been times that I have. Especially in high school and college, you know, encouraging people to watch movies they should not watch. Encouraging maybe friends to lie to their parents. It's a shameful thing, and it's something that God takes very seriously. But where and how have you been guilty of that? Where and how do you need to repent? Notice the second part of the curse on the serpent. Verse 15, this is so important. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman... And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I'm not exaggerating at all when I say that this is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. This is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. I'd encourage you to know Genesis 3.15 well, memorize it, because it's a verse that's alluded to really throughout the entire storyline of Scripture. In the early church, they called this the Proto-Evangelion, which is a big word for first gospel, the first promise that's fulfilled in Jesus. Let's walk through it. God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, as you can see, at this point, God has transitioned from talking about the snake to talking about Satan, the reality behind the snake. 
And he says that because of your actions, Satan, there is going to be empty. Now, what's that word mean? It means war, uh, conflict. There's going to be a perpetual war between Satan and his offspring and the woman and her offspring. Now, the offspring here, depending on your translation, might be seeds. It can't refer to physical offspring. Obviously, Satan doesn't have children. You know, don't think of the offspring of Satan as these kind of weird, deformed uh, zombie children or something like that. Uh, No, this must be spiritual offspring, those who are spiritually aligned with Satan. Similarly, Eve's offspring must be those who share the faith of Eve, those who have turned from their sins and embraced God in faith. To use Jesus' categories, there are those who are of the father of, of your father, the devil, and those who are sons of God through faith in Christ. So very clearly, as a result of the fall, there's going to be this perpetual war, this great battle between those aligned with Satan and those aligned with God, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. And realize that as long as this world stands, this war is going to be going on. This is the great war of the world against the church, the spirit against the flesh, Jesus against the devil. That's simply one of the consequences of the curse. Now you think about it, but the entire rest of the Bible is the outworking of this one verse. Think of it that way, the entire rest of Scripture. We'll see in the next chapter, Genesis 4, the way in which Cain, who's aligned with Satan, kills Abel, who's aligned with God. Later we'll see the way in which God uh, punishes Sodom because they had aligned themselves with the serpent, whereas righteous Lot is rescued out of Sodom. We'll see this in Joseph's life, where Joseph's brothers sell Joseph as a slave into Egypt. What's going on there? Again, it's the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. We'll see it later on in Scripture, when Israel persecutes the prophets that God sent to it. Oddly enough, Israel, the people of God, align themselves with the serpent. This is that epic battle of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness going on throughout Scripture. It begins here in Genesis. Now, here's something else fascinating to ponder. The entire history of the world is contained in this verse. The entire history of the world is this outworking of these two seeds fighting against one another. You think about it when the Roman Empire in the early church, when they persecuted our brothers and sisters and killed them, sometimes setting them on fire when they're still alive. That's the seed of the serpent fighting against the seed of the woman. When Islam was spreading all throughout Europe and about to take over, but then God used Charles Martel to beat them back. It's the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. When Martin Luther ignited the Reformation, and all of a sudden the gospel starts cutting through the darkness of medieval Catholicism and all that's going on there, it's the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. This is continuing to go on today. Good and evil, God and the devil, light and darkness, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. Again, it all goes back here to Genesis 3.15. Do you see why I say this is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible? It's a summary of the entire Bible, and it's a summary of all human history. Now, thinking through these two offspring, these two seeds, I've got to ask you, whose seed are you? Whose offspring are you? Who are you currently aligned with? Realize all of us enter this world already aligned with the evil one, already on Satan's team. To use the words of 2 Corinthians 4.4, we have had our minds blinded by the God of this world to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. All of us from our conception are, in the words of Ephesians 2.1, dead in our trespasses and sins, following after the prince of the power of the air. And we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Realize that's you and me by nature. 
already citizens of the kingdom of darkness, already slaves of the devil. A while back, one of my kids was asking me about this particular guitar player who uh, apparently claimed that he got his unique guitar playing skills by selling his soul to the devil. You ever hear of that sort of thing? I had to explain to him that that's simply not the way it works. Nobody needs to sell their soul to the devil because we're born already belonging to the devil. That's the seed of the serpent, but then there's the seed of the woman. And this seed is made up of all those and only those who have turned from their sins, turned from their rebellion, and believed the promises of God. This seed is made up of all of those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus and putting no confidence in their good works. It's like... It's like we read in John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, talking about Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. I ask you again, who are you? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus? Is he your king and savior? Have you come to the realization that you were living in rebellion against God, running from God, trying to live your own way, but you've turned from that and embraced the Lord Jesus? Has that taken place in your life? Or do you remain separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world? Whose offspring are you? Whose seed are you? In light of this, I beg you to turn to Jesus right now. Turn to Jesus right now. Stop running from him. Stop trying to live in rebellion against him. Stop trying to live as if he did not exist. Turn from your sins and embrace the Lord Jesus right now. You'll begin serving in the kingdom of light. You'll be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness. Turn to Jesus now. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you or pray for you, talk to me after the service. I'll be under the overhang to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today, and today be brought into the kingdom of God. Well, coming back to our passage, look at that last phrase there in verse 15. I find this so fascinating. God says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it's interesting. All of a sudden, God transitions from talking about seed, which is a plural concept, to a he, an individual. It's as if the wide angle lens is zoomed in on one person. And this he, as you can see, is going to bruise Satan's head. Now, incidentally, just as sort of a quick aside, the pronoun there in verse 15 is clearly he, not a she. Now, why do I point that out? I point that out because oftentimes in Roman Catholic theology, they've tried to make this verse talk about the Virgin Mary. Uh, You may have even seen statues uh, of the Virgin Mary standing on a snake. And what's going on there is they're assuming that interpretation of this verse, that it's talking about the Virgin Mary. There are actually at least two official Roman Catholic Bibles that mistranslate this verse that way, including the DeWay translation and the New Jerusalem Bible. They translate it, she shall bruise, the serpent said. But realize there is zero debate in the original Hebrew that this is a he, the singular masculine pronoun. He shall bruise the serpent's head. And really, we don't have the freedom to play willy-nilly with the Bible, uh, just to make it say whatever we want it to say. He shall bruise the serpent's head. Now, let's talk about that. You think about that idea of bruising a serpent's head. That's a pretty uh, mortal wound to a snake, isn't it? You know, imagine there was a snake slithering up here, and all of a sudden I stomped on it. That'd be the end of the snake. Now, contrast that with the other wound. He shall bruise his heel. Now, having a bruised heel, it's not comfortable, but it's not the end of your life. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a mortal wound. So also, this prophecy is describing something that's going to take place, evidently sometime in the future, where a he will arise who will definitively defeat Satan, and yet in the process be minimally wounded. 
Now, this obviously raises the question, who is this verse talking about? Who is this ultimate seed of the woman who will decisively crush the devil and yet in the process be hurt himself? Well, if we know anything about the rest of the Bible, we know that the ultimate seed of the woman is Jesus. Our Lord Jesus, while being fully God, he is born of a woman. And interestingly, many have seen this born of a woman thing as, as kind of an, an allusion to Jesus' virgin birth. Is the fact that he's the seed of the woman alluding to the virgin birth? Maybe. But you think about Jesus' life, all his life long, he did battle with the devil. That's how you ought to interpret the Gospels, his teaching, his miracles, casting out demons. That's not just arbitrary, that's the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the devil. The seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. But then where was the ultimate victory accomplished? Where, where did Jesus crush the serpent's head? Where was it, folks? At the cross. At the cross, that's where, at the cost of his own life, Jesus stomped on the snake. It's like Hebrews 2.14 says, Through death, Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. You see, when Jesus died, all of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the punishment that we deserve for our sins, it was poured out on him on the cross. He absorbed God's wrath, God's judgment in our place, and not in our place only, but for all those who would ever believe. But then having died for our sins, he was raised again, indicating that that was not the end of him. And this is how Satan is crushed through the forgiveness that Jesus purchased on the cross. Satan's power was forever defeated. You see, the one weapon that Satan can use against us is guilt. He can guilt us and say, you know, God doesn't love you. God should not love you. You should go to hell. But that is eradicated by the cross. So by dying, Jesus crushes the serpent. Listen to what John Currid writes. He says, contained in the curse on the serpent is the prophecy that God will send a redeemer to crush the enemy. Jesus is the seed who is descended from Eve and went to do battle against Satan. The remainder of scripture is an unfolding of the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. Redemption is promised in this one verse, and the Bible traces the development of that redemptive theme. That battle, like I said, began in Genesis. It's continuing today, but a day is coming when it will be wrapped up. One day it will be concluded. Listen to Revelation 20, verse 10. A day is coming when the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Praise God that this battle that began here in Genesis 3.15 that we see taking place before our very eyes, one day it will be concluded. And you and I will live in a world where there will be no temptations to sin, no serpents to deceive us. You look forward to that day? Well, consider with me a second judgment here, a second expression of God's anger towards sin. And that's God's judgment against the woman. Verse 16, God's judgment against the woman. Look at verse 16. It says, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, to this day, doctors say that the most painful experience a human can have is to give birth to a child. Uh, you know, despite all of our medical advancements and medicines they've discovered and all sorts of things, still, the most painful experience a person can have is to deliver a baby. And I was thinking about it, but in one sense, that should surprise us if evolution were true. You know, somehow evolution, they claim, has been able to solve all sorts of problems. You know, cause fish to grow legs and cause dinosaurs to turn into birds. It's, you know, people talk of evolution as if it can solve any problem. If that were true, you'd think that evolution would somehow minimize the pain of childbearing. 
that it wouldn't be so painful. And yet, nonetheless, to this day, it's still incredibly painful. And this verse here tells us why, to this day, our God allows delivering a child to be so painful. It all goes back to Eve's sin. And clearly, this is true not only for Eve, but for all successive women after her. That incredible, intense pain, it's pointing us to the evil of sin. Realize that. I remember being in the delivery room for the first time and being a little bit, uh, I don't know, I, don't, I want to be careful here, but it was a little different than what you see on TV. Um, and uh, not in a good way. And what you need to realize is that all of that is designed by God to drive into our heart. This is what it is to, to rebel against God. This is what it is to break my laws. Now, now, obviously, I praise God for my children. And like Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse, once the baby's born, you kind of forget about the pain of the childbearing experience. Um, but, but it's, it's a, a different experience if you've never been there. But let that move you to see how evil it is to rebel against our God. Well, notice the second part of God's judgment on Eve. Not only will she experience great pain in childbearing, but look at verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, this part of this verse has produced an enormous amount of controversy. Uh, and the controversy all centers around what does it mean that her desire is going to be for her husband. Many people take this as sexual desire. As a result of the fall, women will desire their husband sexually. That can't be the case, however, for a few reasons. First, God had already commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, additionally, we understand from the entirety of Scripture that sexual relations within marriage is a good and holy thing. So it makes no sense at all to say that that's the kind of desire that she's going to have for her husband. What kind of desire must this be? It must be evil, since it's a part of the fall. The only desire this could refer to is a desire to domineer her husband, uh, to sort of oppress him into nothing and to take the reins of the family. You'll remember, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, that God created man first. He makes Eve to be his helpmeet, to assist him in his role. And as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that's the way in which God designed the family to be. Every father being the head of his household, almost being like the pastor of his family, and the wife assisting in that. And yet, as we can see here, one of the consequences of the fall is it's going to pervert all of that, subvert all of that. Just like I struggle with submitting the uh, authorities over me. So also ladies will submit to or will struggle with submitting to their husband's authority. This is how sin has messed us up. And yet realize that part of the process of growth and holiness is submitting to those authorities God has put over you. Again, just like spiritual maturity means that I'm going to submit to the government, submit to my uh, boss, which is you, by the way, my congregation. So also growth and holiness as a wife is to learn to happily submit to the authority of her husband. This is why Paul commands wives in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Ladies, let me just counsel you. Fight against that temptation to take the reins of your family. Uh, even if your husband's a, a good-for-nothing loser, which I know such things exist in our world, but even if that's the case, don't just criticize him into nothing. You know, don't try to subvert his leadership. Pray for him. Do what you can to encourage him. Maybe seek the help of your local church. But respect God's design. Let's consider one last set of curses here. God's judgment on the man. That's what we see in verses 17 through 19. God's judgment on the man, meaning Adam originally, but really all of us today. Look at verse 17. 
And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Now in these verses we have two aspects of the curse and how it relates to Adam. The first affects the ground, the soil. The second affects how we work. Now look at the ground. The entire earth is cursed because of what Adam did. In verse 17 it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. And then in verse 18, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. What this is pointing us to is the way in which the entire structure of the universe was altered because of Adam's sin. Did you realize that? I mean, this is, this, this is so monumental. Adam's sin, again, it's not just this trivial thing that affected him. It changed, it altered the entire structure of our universe. Romans 8.20 describes it this way. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself might be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Think about it. As a result of Adam's sin, instantly plants began bearing thorns. Mosquitoes began to bite. Lions began to kill. Snakes developed poison sacks. Hurricanes began to destroy. Tornadoes began to rip houses apart. Mutations and viruses arose, all going back to Adam's sin. It's really cosmic in its scope. Again, learn from this how serious sin is. One of my great concerns is that we don't really see sin as bad as it is. I don't really see sin as bad as it is. We think, yeah, sin, you know, we really shouldn't do this. But come on, who's perfect? If something transforms the universe and makes it cause thorns to all of a sudden spring about, that's how bad our sins are. Keep this truth in mind, by the way, in your evangelism. From time to time, you'll encounter people that don't realize that this current creation has been cursed by sin. They think God made it this way. I actually encountered this yesterday with my daughters. We went swimming, and some ticks landed on my daughters, and we obviously brushed them off and killed the ticks, praise God. Uh, but I explained to them the way that ticks can communicate Lyme disease and all of that. And one of my daughters asked me, you know, why did God make ticks if they can communicate disease like that? Well, I had to explain to them that I didn't make ticks like that, that that's actually part of the fall, that things all got perverted, and that's, that's how it take, took place. But realize that's a common objection in evangelism. People don't really get the way in which the current universe is not the good creation that God made, but has been perverted and corrupted by sin. Well, not only was the ground cursed because of Adam's sin, but look at the way in which Adam's work is changed. Verse 17, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Then again, verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Now you'll remember, again, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, God gave Adam work before the fall. Work was a good thing, a righteous calling, something God designed him to do. And yet, as you can clearly see, now it is frustrated. It becomes toilsome labor. From this point forward, it would be sweating and straining and frustration. And yet, without that sweating and straining and frustration, the earth would not give the fruit that Adam needs to live. Again, I'd encourage you to remind yourself of this when you get frustrated in your work. When you got, say, a backache from shoveling snow all day. Uh, when you got, say, you know, one of those tension headaches because you've been staring at the computer screen all day long. Or here's my favorite one, when you're 
printer won't print out something that you're trying to get it to print. You've hit print like a thousand times and the paper's in there and it's plugged in and it says it's got enough ink, but it won't print. Uh, realize again, that frustration is due to Adam and his rebellion. But again, this is something I've been thinking about lately. If I were in Adam's shoes, I'd probably do just as bad if not worse. So it's not like, oh, you know, let's, let's blame awful Adam. I'd do just as bad if not worse if I were in his shoes. But all of this frustration, all of this toil, it's designed to point us back to how evil it is to break our God's laws. How serious sin is and how much we need a Savior. Well, to conclude our time this morning, let me give you two big lessons that we learn from all of these curses. You obviously can learn a lot of lessons from all of this pain and suffering, but two big lessons and we'll be done. First, the fall reminds us the way of how sinful rebellion against God always brings more pain and suffering and death than we could ever conceive of. The fall reminds us that sinful rebellion against God always brings more pain and suffering and death than we could ever conceive of. I doubt Adam and Eve had any idea how their sin would affect the billions of people who would come after them. I doubt they had any clue the way in which it would distort the entire created universe. The seemingly insignificant act of eating a little piece of fruit introduced incredible poison and evil into this universe. So also we, whenever we flagrantly disobey God's clearly commands, we are inviting pain, we are inviting suffering, we might even be inviting physical death that we have no idea. Breaking God's laws, it always brings shame, pain, suffering, more so than we'll ever anticipate. And while certainly Jesus' blood can cleanse us from all sin, that is a sin that we will regret. Remind yourself of these things next time you're facing a really strong temptation. You ever been there? I have. You know, you're sitting there thinking, I know I shouldn't do this, but it's so tempting. You know, you kind of try and distract yourself, think about something else, but then the thought, the sinful temptation keeps coming back. I know I shouldn't do this, but it's, it's probably going to be kind of fun. As fast as you can, get your mind back to the fall and realize we are toying with something that has the ability to destroy us. It's going to create far more pain and suffering than I ever imagined. Allow that to drive you to hate sin. But here's the second lesson. And with this we close. The fall teaches us to long for heaven, where all the curses will be erased. The fall teaches us to long for heaven, where all the curses will be erased. Something you may have noticed in this passage is how often God uses that phrase, all the days of your life comes up at least three times. The serpent's going to crawl on his belly all the days of his life. The man will work by the sweat of his brow all the days of his life. And implied is that women will experience pain and childbearing all the days of your life. And what God is teaching us is the way in which in this world, this is how earth is going to be. In this world, this is how our life is going to be. No matter how good we get it, how much we advance scientifically, how many medicines we conceive of, this is always going to be a fallen world that's filled with death and suffering. And yet, for those of us who have turned from our sins and embraced Jesus, one day we will live in a world where all the effects of sin will be forever gone. One day we'll enter that new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, where there'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering. One day, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, sin and all of its consequences will be gone. And then the sufferings of this present life won't be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Listen to Revelation 7.16, describing a bit of this new creation. It says this, They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. 
For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So at the end of the day, let Genesis 3 move you to long for heaven. Don't buy these lies that with the right policies we can create utopia here on earth. Don't buy these lies that if you follow this exercise program, you take these supplements, uh, that you can literally live forever. No, if you are a Christian, the sufferings of this life now are the closest thing that you'll ever get to hell. Maybe think on that in your devotions this week. If your hope is in Jesus and you're a Christian, the sufferings of this life are the closest thing you'll ever experience to hell. So let the fall move in us a longing for heaven, that perfect world where there's no sin, no fall, no consequences of sin. And let us praise God for our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who became a curse for us that we might be delivered from the curse. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the freedom and the privilege of studying it together. Thank you for the way that you've told us why our world is this way, why it's not the way that it's supposed to be. But thank you even more so for the Savior, this serpent crusher, and for the way that he has definitively defeated Satan, and for the way that one day he'll create a new heavens and a new earth where there are no curses of sin. Lord, move in us by your Spirit that we would respond as we should. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.